Greetings and salutations, scholar warriors. CJ here with another dastardly dose of dangerous discourse. This is episode 175 of the Dangerous History Podcast, and I'm super happy to have been joined for this episode by the investigative journalist and author Russ Baker, who of course is author of the excellent book Family of Secrets that I always highly recommend as one of my top picks to getting a very, very well-researched nuts-and-bolts exploration into some of the dark corners of the American power elite in the mid to late 20th century. When George Herbert Walker Bush clocked out of this life a couple of weeks ago, I thought, man, I really ought to do something because he was such an overlooked figure in American power elite politics, at least by the mainstream. And the mainstream, not only during his lifetime, but even more so after he died, really went out of their way to portray this guy in a purely benevolent light and to really do some hagiography. And it's just been sickening to me watching the the coverage of him and his, his funeral and all this sort of thing, and knowing what I know, a lot of it thanks to Russ Baker, about who this guy really was and what he was really up to during his career. It really bugged me, so it occurred to me relatively soon after I learned that Poppy Bush had shuffled off this mortal coil, it would be great if I could talk to the guy who, to me, is the expert on all things Bush in general and George H.W. Bush in particular, and that, of course, is Ross Baker. So I was super happy to be able to get in touch with him and to eventually figure out a mutually agreeable time to talk on the old Skype. Real quick, though, before I get into our conversation, I just wanted to mention in terms of announcements that as I'm making this episode in less than 48 hours, I'm going to be going under the knife, getting some surgery, and so I'll be a little bit out of action for probably at least a few days. If everything goes smoothly and routinely, I should be fairly functional within a couple of days, but it, of course, will slow me down a little bit, and of course, if anything is not routine, it may end up being a little bit longer before I'm really kicking it at full gear. But over the course of my Christmas break, as I recover, I am planning on doing a lot of work on the Dangerous History Podcast, of course, as much as my health allows, including on the short-term docket are, of course, the final Not-So-Civil War episode, which... As I've mentioned before, I had a good chunk of it already recorded and edited and then lost the file. So I'm going to have to redo that and then, of course, still do the parts of the episode that I had not already done yet. And like I've said before, that's going to be a pretty long, chunky episode. And I'm going to do my best, health permitting, of course, to try to get that knocked out before the end of the year. And then another thing that I'm working on to try to get done, maybe not by the end of the year, but maybe if things go well, is the Patreon bonus episode I've mentioned before about sort of the, the guns and the tactics and all that sort of stuff related to the Civil War, including things like snipers and all that kind of fun stuff. So I've done some extensive research, still have a little bit more I want to do on that, and then of course I'll have to make the episode itself for my Patreon supporters, but... It is another thing that I'll be working on over the break, and then, of course, still working on massive amounts of research for the upcoming Woodrow Wilson series. 
And speaking of Patreon, I know that some of the things that they've done lately to some content producers based on seemingly arbitrary ideological reasons and little or nothing else have miffed a lot of people who have been on Patreon, who've supported people on Patreon, and I know that I've lost at least more than a few Patreon supporters, not because of anything that I've done, but simply because Patreon has pissed them off and they don't want to have, you know, a percentage of the money they're sending to me going to Patreon. And, you know, I can understand and respect that. I'm going to keep using Patreon because it's there uh, unless and until they ever do anything to me. But I do want to mention that another thing I'm going to try and do over Christmas break is to set up at least one alternative to Patreon so that anybody who really has personal issues with doing business with Patreon will have another way to be able to support me and any other content producer who chooses this alternative route as well, so that I'll basically have at least two redundant ways for listeners to support me. And that way people have options. And also at the same time, heaven forbid, should anything ever happen to my account on Patreon, I would already have an alternative somewhat up and running so that hopefully my supporters would be able to pretty quickly and smoothly transition to the other platform if they had to. So keep an eye out for that. I hope that if you are currently a Patreon supporter of me and you're thinking about leaving because you're annoyed at Patreon about things like this, that you'll consider hanging on at least until I've got the alternative up and running. In other words, I know you want to punish Patreon for doing stuff you don't like. I completely understand that sentiment, but you're punishing the content creators more. Because most of every dollar you give to Patreon for a content creator does go to the creator, and a smaller percentage goes to Patreon. So I hope you'll consider hanging tight, at least until I've got something else up and running, and like I said, I'm going to try and have that going pretty soon. So anyway, sorry about that diversion. Now let me present to you my conversation with Russ Baker. So just over two weeks prior to this recording on November 30th, I believe, of of this year, 2018, George Herbert Walker Bush finally checked out of this life at age 94. Um, We've all heard the phrase, only the good die young, and apparently the, the, uh, the inverse of that statement is also true. And... Ever since he checked out, the flags have been flying at half-mast, and the mainstream media have just been gushing about him ever since. And for those of us who know even some of the truth about this guy's life and career, it's been just maddening and nauseating to kind of be around all this all this worshipping of this guy, which is why I'm so, so happy to be able to welcome to the Dangerous History Podcast investigative journalist Russ Baker, 
who, of course, is the author of the book Family of Secrets, all about the the real history of the Bush family, which is just, in my opinion, a masterpiece of very meticulously researched power elite analysis. And a lot of it centers in particular around the late George H.W. Bush, or Poppy, as he's often referred to. So anyway, Russ, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me this morning. Glad to do it, CJ. Are you familiar with the film The Usual Suspects? Uh, Yeah, I haven't seen it in ages. Right. Well, um, one thing that occurred to me as I was thinking about Poppy and what he really was in sort of the American political scene, it occurred to me that Bush 41 and the reality of his career versus the public perception of him, he's really the Kaiser Soze of 20th century American power elite circles. Um, and I don't know if you, if you remember the character of Kaiser Soze, Kevin Spacey's character on The Usual Suspects, but you know he's this guy who normally appears to be this sort of you know mild mannered, innocuous sort of a, a, a minor figure, and yet in reality it turns out he's really uh, the the kingpin, the kingpin, the criminal mastermind, all that sort of stuff. Would you say that that's that's a fair kind of metaphor of George H. W. Bush? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, there are all kinds of interesting metaphors you can use. Another one would be from another movie would be Zelig, uh, because of the extraordinary extent to which he shows up in uh, historical episodes, but always sort of kind of in the background. And I say that in my book, that he and his family kind of, they're always in the picture, but they're a little bit off to the side. So the Kaiser Soze thing is an interesting uh, interesting one. I think you kind of probably have to mix the two to get that right. But oh, okay. they're they're always. I think they're they were really several generations of them really involved in everything, but not in the way that you would expect uh, from the conventional historic historical analysis. But rather that they were very careful, particularly uh, Poppy Bush, in keeping their fingerprints off of things. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's amazing. Um... In Family of Secrets, you know how many times you 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 run into these little uh, deceptive maneuvers that they've done in terms of like the historical record and the paper trail of things and so forth. But I'm sure we'll get into some of that. But for any listeners who might not be familiar with you and your work, particularly in regard to the Bush family, can you tell us a bit about your background as a journalist and sort of how you started researching into the Bush family? Sure, um, I began in journalism in the 1980s. Um, I had studied, I'd taken some journalism courses in college and went off and did other things. And then uh, I decided I really wanted to be a journalist. And I came out to New York, got a a journalism degree, a master's degree in journalism, and uh, then stayed on in New York. And I just began making my way, just working, trying to you know, get opportunities like anybody else. Uh, I was fortunate to discover an affinity for investigative journalism, which is a term that's not properly appreciated in the sense that a lot of people call themselves investigative journalists, but it really involves a kind of a self, one's own drive, really, and curiosity and wanting to answer things. And most journalism really is not investigative journalism. It's reactive journalism. Uh, So investigative journalism is really sometimes even identifying that there's a need, that there's a story there. Uh, And so I kind of 
identified that instinct in myself fairly early. Uh, and I began doing that both uh, independent and working for and with news organizations. And so I did a lot of work for the late great Village Voice, a newspaper in New York, a weekly newspaper that really was a leader, I think, nationally and even internationally in cracking some very, very big stories. So I, I had the opportunity to work there for about five years, uh, along with other places. And that, I think, really set me on the course of, of digging into things. I became interested in in uh, Bush Sr. in the early 90s. Um, I had been investigating a local charity in New York. It's called Covenant House. It's a place that takes in uh, runaways and things like that. It's a funded and run by the Catholic Church. And there were these scandals, sex scandals, around the priest who ran it. Um, and so uh, as I began looking in, into Covenant House, I became interested in there who, who ran it, the board of directors. It was a fellow ran who had his own charity, which was doing disaster relief around the world, going into all these places and ostensibly helping the locals. And that man, as I looked at him, he was the college roommate of George H.W. or Poppy Bush. And that's kind of, I think, the moment when Poppy got onto my radar, because I began looking at this man. And after a little while, I started realizing there was something wrong with his charity. And it became clear to me that it was, they were doing certainly charitable work, but they also, there was some kind of, um, let's call it a commercial cover for intelligence, U.S. intelligence operations. And of course, once I knew that this man was like that, and he'd been a, a college roommate of Poppy Bush, started thinking, well, that's interesting. I don't know what Poppy's role is. And then there was Poppy with a thousand points of light, his initiative to help charities. And he was praising this fellow and involved with all these other things. And then some of the other charities I began looking at also started looking strange. And I thought, oh, my God, I, I know so little about this stuff. I mean, this man, uh, when I was looking into him, he was he was president of the United States. So that was sort of the background. Uh, and then I, I kind of dropped that, although I began actually looking into the CIA. And so at the Village Voice, I did some pieces about the CIA. And I remained interested in uh, covert operations, intelligence, the U.S. gradually becoming more interested in the U.S. military industrial complex. And then um, flash forward to the, uh, the 2000s and the uh, war with Iraq. And it became clear that they had wanted to go to war, that there was some ulterior motive there besides something particular that was actually going on. And there was the fake weapons of mass destruction scenario. And so I became interested in the sun. Then despite all of that, the sun was actually running for re-election. I said, well, how could that be? Um, you know, shouldn't there be any consequences for lying the country into war? So I began looking into the sun. And uh, that really gradually, uh, as I found more and more lies about the son, found that he had skipped out on his military service, discovered that the father, Poppy Bush, seems to have played a role in fixing his son's situation. And I just thought I'd take a look at the family. And then that, that process of looking at the family after everybody had already decided we knew everything about them led me into Family of Secrets, which was a, this extraordinary voyage uh, like like the movie Fantastic Voyage, you know, way into the body politic. And it just sort of changed my understanding of not just them, but of the media, of history, of how we tell stories and how we understand things, and really pretty much reoriented me on, on everything. So would it be fair to say that when you really started doing the the research for what became Family of Secrets, 
that you still had a relatively blank slate in regards to the bushes. I mean, you you had you had certainly some inkling that things were a bit fishy with them and that they were involved in some some nefarious things maybe but but you didn't really have like a a, a super detailed view of of what you were going to find you you went into it sort of just open minded right well it, uh, probably too open minded because i sort of forgot you know you're prompting me to remember this backstory with the uh, with those charities i think i had pretty much forgotten all that when I began looking at them for the book, uh, I, 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 I tend to be very agnostic. And so I sort of put everything aside and I literally began just looking at George W. Bush, trying to understand how this fellow who didn't seem particularly distinguished or competent or anything, how he had become president of the United States. And I literally began traveling the country just asking people who knew much more about them or knew them uh, what it was that what was the explanation for George W., the son, Bush 43, to become president of the United States? And I found a lack of curiosity, a lack of interest in that question, which itself was very interesting to me that a lot of things in this country, we don't actually really understand them. We just say, oh, well, I think, you know, and, and I, maybe we'll get into this. I mean, I started learning of things that I just took for granted that, you know, Oswald did it, you know, whatever it was, 9-11 is just a simple story of this band of individuals and who pulled off this magnificent thing. We tend to, um, most of us, I think, and I certainly most journalists, uh, tend to take a kind of a benign view of things, a kind of a benign view of the system and of the United States as a concept, let's say. Uh, and so I, I kind of went in like that, just very um, uh, not uh, not with an agenda and not with a with a theory. I was just trying to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, out of curiosity, about how many years research went into Family of Secrets? I spent a total of. I want to say about, uh, well, if you count the work I did in 2004, because I was working on research about George W. in 2004. So let's say 2004, five, six, seven, about five years. Wow. Okay. So let's start digging into the late Poppy Bush. The, the official story of him is that he's this, you know, genial, but even kind of like wimpy, maybe a little bit milk toast, maybe not that even bright of a guy. I mean, he's a little more articulate than W, but not by a whole lot. And the view is, you know, he's he's a World War II hero and basically a good guy, generally went generally meant well, was a relatively benevolent figure. But your research pretty quickly started to show that that is not at all accurate, or at least it's very far from the whole truth anyway. So what's the kind of uh, uh, bird's eye view, I guess, of how the official story and view of Poppy Bush is not really the reality? Yeah, I don't know. There was a single moment when this occurred to me, but I will say that when I was researching The Sun and discovering that he appeared to have just literally left his obligatory military service right in the middle of Vietnam and just decided not to do it. And that interested me so much. And as I began looking at the father and, um, you know, records disappeared. <laughs> I, I remember there was a there was a giant fire at a records facility. So 
is the records we would have been able to look at had been were all burned up, and not just them, but millions of other records along with them. And I just started seeing all these things, and I was like, "Yikes!" You know, I mean, if somebody wanted to fix that, that's a rather extreme uh, solution. It was really those are you. You were mentioning Kevin Spacey. I mean, these are the kinds of things you'd expect to see in a fictional thing like House of Cards. Mm-hmm. So, um, as I kept looking at the father, I just became more and more interested in him. Also, I think in the other way I came to the father was as I asked people why W became president, they said, well, you know, I mean, his father had been president and another person with the same first name, same last name. It's not that not that much of a stretch. And so I began looking at the father, trying to figure out how he became president already with some of these other things in the back of my mind, some suspicions and uh, the explanations I got. Well, he was president because he was vice president. I said, "Okay, and why was he vice president? Well, I mean. Let's see, he'd been a CIA director before that. And then I said, well, how many other CIA directors became vice president or president? And the answer was none. And then I began asking, why was he CIA director? And people just shrugged. Um, And I said, you know, as I started looking into that, he seemed very improbable. He uh, uh, didn't have any, this is the official story, he didn't have any background with intelligence of any sort knew nothing about it, uh, had not expressed himself on the issue. And I just said, I I don't understand why, of all the people you could choose, you would choose this man, particularly because at that time in 1975, the CIA was was under assault. It was under the microscope by very vigorous senatorial hearings and congressional hearings. And uh, they were discovering things that were really convulsing America. They were before that, all we knew about the CIA was it was secret and did supposedly a great job. But we were learning for the first time that it was committing these very violent uh, and illegal acts around the world. And so uh, there was this tremendous uh, uh, upheaval, let's say. And at that moment, really, the agency's very survival was threatened. And it was at that precise moment that they chose this kind of uh, as you fellow, you described this kind of um, inconsequential figure, and it just didn't make any sense to me. So I began drilling into that, and in the course of doing that, um, I began to realize that, well, wait a minute, let's look at him and his family. I mean, his father, I began uh, finding, was himself involved with intelligence stuff, and as I started looking back at the family, even a great-great-grandfather, uh, so that would started looking more like a family um, side business, if you will, or or maybe even primary business. And then um, I ran across a mention in a book by Kitty Kelly that um, George H.W. Bush uh, couldn't remember where he was um, uh, the day that Kennedy was killed. He had been asked by that in a media interview and kind of blanched. And so, of course, I was fascinated by that, started trying to figure out where he was, began going through archives of his papers from his business Zapata offshore, that started looking strange, again, like commercial cover to me. And that was going back to 63 and prior. And I started saying, okay, I'm looking at something else here, something very, very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, their family goes goes way back in kind of American power elite circles. Um, as you mentioned, his father, Prescott Bush, who, if anyone knows anything about him at all, it's usually just, well, he was a senator for a little while or whatever. But um, there's obviously a lot more to him as well. And then I know his his grandfather, Samuel Prescott Bush, was 
involved heavily in in kind of the early stages of the military industrial complex with with World War One. He was if I remember correctly, Samuel Prescott Bush was the chair of the Ordnance Small Arms and Ammunition uh, Department of the War Industries Board during World War during America's involvement in World War One, and at the same time he was head of the of the Rockefeller connected Buckeye Steel Company, which was also involved with the at the time Rockefeller uh, owned. Remington Arms Company and and both of those companies, um, you know, made tremendous profits off of American involvement in World War One. So these these people go way back. I mean, there isn't uh, don't they say that they can trace at least some of their ancestors back to the Mayflower or something like that? Yeah, right. And uh, uh, I actually put a little bit of that in the book, certainly right. about the grandfather, the great grandfather, and then I. I kind of the last rest of it I, I put aside, but they do have extraordinarily interesting roots. They're not a um, they're not the uh, super upper class. Uh, they're kind of um, you know if you look at like uh, Samuel Bush, his company was successful, but it's not like one of the giant companies. And they're they're kind of like cogs, you know, in the in the in the system. And they're working with the financing and support and encouragement uh, of these wealthier, more powerful interests. They're, they're kind of like the, you know, political and action arm, um, of the establishment. Yeah. The, the way that I, I put it, um, when I'm teaching classes and I'm getting into some of this, uh, cause I'm, I'm one of the few people who actually will like teach a college history course and bring in a lot of this information that's normally just, you know, left out of the, out of the official story. And the way I describe families like the Bushes um, and their relationship to the people who are above them is I use the analogy because it's one a lot of my students can relate to, um, you know, at a restaurant, how you've got the manager, right? And the manager is the one who's kind of day to day running things. And he's the guy you see, you know, out there floating around the tables, checking on things, directly overseeing the workers. And he's the guy that you'll probably deal with if you have a basic little, you know, problem or issue or whatever. But but the manager isn't the owner, right? In in most restaurants, they're they're different people unless it's you know, a real small operation. And so the way I tell my students is, you know, a family like the Bushes, they're kind of like managers. And then various other families, the the Rockefellers, the Morgans, perhaps the Harrimans, those sorts of people, and many others, those are the owners, you know. And you you rarely see them um, doing the kind of day to day work of, of, of the legwork of, of running these sorts of things. But anyway, that's, that's just, well, how that, that's actually a very nice analogy. I like that. And with your permission, I might want to steal that. Oh, sure. By all uh, means. Yeah, it's very good. Um, and, and it's a very clear and simple way to understand this. Uh, and this is not surprising because, uh, you know, very often the people who, whatever it was, owned the plantation, they had the overseer and so on. Right. And they take a lot of the flack and they have to deal with a lot of the uh, more unpleasant aspects of things, uh, do the dirty work and so on. And, um, uh, and, and these families, you know, you have to understand that once they had uh, made their fortune, they then used that fortune to consolidate their power through so-called good works. And so the, the wives went out to form these reformists, so-called things like the settlement houses in New York, 
working with the poor, starting groups like uh, Planned Parenthood in the early days, you know, working with uh, you know mothers so that they could uh, have a, have an abortion rather than producing more black kids or whatever. So it was this odd mix of sort of seeming benevolence with self-interest, and they were involved. These very wealthy families were involved in things like the Museum of Natural History in New York, which actually had some roots in uh, kind of trying to tell a story of the superiority of the race. And you know, there were people from the eugenics crowd. I think Prescott Bush, some people he knew, were involved with eugenics. And this explains to some extent why there were some at least uh, tacit sympathies with uh, Hitler and with the Nazis. Um, because there was an idea that they were, and this goes back to the whole kind of notion of the, the uh, uber wasps and what have you. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so, I mean, the, the the families that we don't really talk about much, as you say, the uh, uh, the Carnegies and the Mellons and the Morgans and the Harrimans and the what have you, um, they were sort of untouchable. And even today, uh, we have these very, these families that own, a tremendous amount of, say, real estate in New York and what have you. And they're associated mostly with uh, their name is on everything, uh, universities and hospitals and so on. And so we just kind of think of them as as these. Uh, we don't really even think about them th- that much, but the names are sort of associated in very benign ways with goodness. And that's very important to these families to start doing that. And even the now with the younger ones, uh, you know, a Bill Gates or something, he leaves Microsoft, where, I mean, he was very ruthless uh, throughout his career, and then he devotes himself to getting constant uh, publicity. I'm not saying he's not sincere. I mean, he probably is, but he's getting constant publicity about going around trying to remedy problems in the most problem-ridden parts of the world. So that's kind of how it works, and if there are any ongoing lingering problems that Bill Gates confronts, you're not going to hear that Bill Gates was dealing with it was going to be three or four steps removed from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So circling back around um, to, to Poppy Bush. So as you said, he ran the CIA for, I guess, just under one full year in the late seventies at the tail end of the Ford administration. But you quickly discovered all kinds of things that seemed to point in the direction that he was actually involved with the CIA working for and with them in a kind of off the book sort of way for, I guess, over two decades before he became CIA director, which then, when when you know that, it then makes more sense that he would be CIA director. And that really, uh, going back to his Yale Skull and Bones days and his World War II days, he had prior connections to important intelligence guys even before there was a CIA. So can you tell us a, a little bit about the connections you found uh, connecting Poppy Bush to the CIA and to some of its predecessors? Yeah, I mean, uh, you mentioned some of them. The fact that he was in Skull and Bones, which in itself doesn't prove anything, but it was a very elite group. Uh, They were very carefully chosen. Skull and Bones was steered not just by the current class of Bonesmen, but by the former Bonesmen who who inhabited some of the most important positions in the American hierarchy. And so nobody was going in there unless... They wanted that person in there. And so that's important to know. And there was this long history of people from Skull and Bones being involved in intelligence work, particularly in that period. That And, and then in just in general, those schools, those smaller, uh, you know, uh, these Ivy League schools 
recruited most of their important uh, assets from those schools, uh, particularly Yale was, I think, one of the principal ones, and that's where he was. Also, uh, it's documented that he was doing mil- uh, naval intelligence work in World War II before matriculating at Yale. Uh, and so, um, so he already had that background. His father was a U.S. senator who um, was involved with overseeing intelligence activities from the Senate. The father was in business, doing business with, very close with, Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA. So we already knew that all this was surrounding him and was in the family. And then I began noticing patterns when looking at um, these very dull, benign-seeming papers from his business, uh, that you know his travels, and I just couldn't understand why he was going to places and the 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 um the correspondence setting up meetings and things didn't seem to actually relate that I could tell to any substantive deals that they made or that the company really and the company was never making any money and yet here he was funded to constantly travel around the world and also to travel to places that frankly if if I had an offshore drilling company I'd be concentrating on company countries that had oil offshore, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, not, not, not landlocked countries or ones that just didn't have oil. Um, and so it was interesting to me, for example, that, um, uh, you know, that, uh, they had an office in Medellin, Colombia. Um, I just didn't get that. I mean, Medellin <laughs> is not on the coast, you know, doesn't seem as far as I know to have anything to do with oil. Um, and you know, they would hire these strange people. They hired this if I have this correctly, uh, again, it's in my book, Family of Secrets. Um, he, um, he hired this, I think he was a judge from a small county in Texas who'd been instrumental in helping LBJ um, uh, become a senator in an election that was, is, is widely considered to have been fixed, ballot box staffing, uh, stuffing, fellow named Judge Bravo, and he gave him this job in his, you know, in his office in Medellin. And I couldn't figure that out, except that he seemed to be, for some reason, doing a favor to this judge. Maybe he wanted to live there or something. Uh, and, and it's a nice place with a great climate. Uh, and so uh, I then realized, looking at that, I, I discovered a, a back history of great friendship between um, George H.W. Bush and Linda Johnson. And so when we get to the, the topic of his not remembering where he was when Kennedy was shot, of course, Kennedy was shot. Johnson immediately became president. Uh, and I later found out that when Nixon became uh, was inaugurated uh, as a Republican, Republican Poppy Bush left the inaugural ceremonies to go to the airport to quietly see LBJ off as he uh, rode off into the sunset. And I was fascinated by that because ostensibly from different parties, I should mean that they don't work closely together, but in fact, there was a relationship there. And, uh, and of course, um, one wants to know more about those kinds of things. So there were any number of those matters. Um, I also began discovering that uh, Bush was friends with all of these people in intelligence around the world. And it started looking like those trips he was taking. He'd go to you know Athens, and the Athens bureau chief would turn out to be an old buddy of his. Uh, and the same thing in all these other places. And I said, I, I don't know, I don't see any money being made here, but I sure do see some interesting associations. Yeah. And for, for those who are not uh, familiar with that sort of world, that clandestine world, 
it's important to point out that it's well known that the CIA frequently would be involved with setting up, you know, front corporations and things like that in order to to conceal their influence and, you know, to to conduct operations in various parts of the world. I mean, even the the recent Hollywood movie, uh, what's it called, American Made, with Tom with Tom Cruise playing Barry Seal, and of course, there's you know a bunch of historical inaccuracies in that movie, but the overall the overall big picture story of it is pretty much correct as far as the way that that the CIA operated there. And so it's really not not as much of a stretch as someone might think if they're not familiar with with the history of this stuff, that Poppy Bush's company, Zapata Oil, could very well and seems to have been a a, a CIA, you know, puppet, a CIA front corporation. Yeah. And also I found a document where there was a discussion of uh, the creation of a what they called a Caribbean project, and they were going to present this at a meeting in Washington to with Alan Dulles and Prescott Bush and some other folks. They were going to kind of pitch them on this thing. And the timing of that is shortly before the creation of Zapata Offshore. Uh, the man who, I don't want to get into too much detail here, but the man who was sending this letter or was convening this meeting ran a company called Dresser Industries, which was a real company that did um, a lot of different things in uh, oil field services and so forth. Uh, the man who ran that had worked for the Bush family um, way back in, um, in uh, Brown Brothers Harriman, the investment banking firm they were involved with. And he seems to have been appointed to come in and take over this company and set it, run it. And, uh, and so I believe he also was deeply involved with intelligence stuff. And then uh, Poppy Bush, in his early days in coming into Texas, was working with those same entities with Dresser and so forth. Um, and so uh, his, you know, then he was briefly involved with a company called Zapata, which was a drilling company based out of there. Whether that was Intel, Intel or not, I, I don't know. I, I don't see any evidence. And then he created this Zapata Offshore which actually had nothing to do with the other company. And that is another intelligence strategy that you confuse people by using the same names, similar names, uh, literally duplicating. You'll have an official entity. You'll have another entity that seems to do the same thing as the same name and is the real one. Uh, so this all sounds kind of wow, you know, but that's what you do. You know, when you're when, you, when the whole basis for what you're doing must be concealed, you go to tremendous lengths to do this. You develop procedures and protocols, and you stick to them until you come up with something better. And that, that's what they were doing. Okay, and, and that kind of uh, provides that, that whole concept where they're, they're muddying the paper trail, they're muddying the historical record kind of deliberately, you know, making things uh, confusing and, and so on. Um, that brings me around to something that I definitely wanted to bring up with you, which is the very, very interesting connections that you show in Family of Secrets between Poppy Bush and the JFK assassination, which I've got to say, I, I was someone who, before I read Family of Secrets, and I read it pretty soon after it first came out, I was already, for various other reasons, skeptical of the official story of the JFK assassination. And... It seemed I, I had never run into a Poppy Bush connection before, though, in regard to that. And at first I was like, really? 
really, of all people, George George H. W. Bush, you know, ha- has some sort of connection to the Kennedy assassination. But then, when I read Family of Secrets, I was like, holy cow, this uh, <laughs> this this seems to to definitely hold some water. So, can you tell us a little bit about some of some of the things that you discovered that seemed to connect Poppy Bush to the Kennedy assassination? Yeah, well, once I heard that he, the, the, his claim that he couldn't remember where he was that day, that got my attention. And I just decided to focus not on that statement, uh, but on where he was. And so as I began looking at and recreating his travel schedule and his activities in 1963, one of the things that had already interested me was in 1962, a man who had no involvement with politics suddenly got political. Um, he ran for the county chair of the local county Republican Party in the Houston area. And they basically appear to have forced out the chairman and not only forced him out, but scared him so much that he he left the state. He he moved to Florida. Hmm. Uh, And and I think that a decision was made that they needed to they needed Poppy in that job. And they told the other guy, get out. Reminds me of uh, great movies about the mob. Right. you know, the son of the mobster needs to come in and the other person has to get out, you know, Amscray, uh, 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 you know, pronto. So um, that's what that looked like to me. And then suddenly he's the from from really being nothing there. He's the he's the uh, the head of this thing. And then he is um, doing some work on it. But then uh, he announces that he's running for U.S. Senate. Again, a, a man who hadn't held any elected office uh, is running for U.S. Senate. And because he's running for U.S. Senate, he now has an excuse to travel at least all over Texas. And he's ostensibly, you know, he's, he's making some speeches and things. And um, I then am able to find out where he was on November 22. This was a major, as you can imagine, rather exciting breakthrough for me to actually see written documentation, which I do provide in Family of Secrets. My book, you can see the actual documents for almost everything I'm telling you Everything's documented, and it's documented from government documents, which is the only way to work with such controversial subjects, because, of course, you're going to be under attack uh, from people who, uh, think, who who have an investment in conventional narratives and conventional that the public believe these conventional narratives. So, so I basically uh, identified the fact that he was in Dallas, and then I identified the fact that he was, as you said, about these sort of cover-ups alternative stories, very carefully engineered. He had he was creating an alibi uh, for not being in Dallas, even though we know he was in Dallas. And so he had all these layers of things. He had a reason to be in Dallas, which ostensibly sounded benign, except when you looked at that, it really wasn't. It was a, uh, a meeting of an oil drilling association where the key officers, I later found out, turned out all to many of them to have intelligence connections themselves. Uh, and I'm still working on things now for f- another book where I'm seeing more about that, that the uh, man who ran it was um, is showing up now in other things related to the Kennedy assassination, traveling abroad and so forth. And so they, I then looked at this organization and saw that they had just had their meeting recently. So this was like an extra meeting <laughs> that it appeared had been hastily called. I'm not even sure how well attended it was. And that's what they would do, of course, in intelligence work is – if you needed to do something, you're looking for a degree of verisimilitude. So you want something to appear logical, and uh, and it's something very similar to some other thing. 
Uh, and so there was this this extra meeting uh, on November 21, and there he was. Um, and then he doesn't resurface again until after Kennedy is shot in Tyler, Texas, a uh, smaller city, pretty close to Dallas. And, uh, and, and then there are these other documents I become aware of, including a declassified FBI memo, which shows that a Mr. George Herbert Walker Bush of a particular address in Dallas, in Houston, which was his address, uh, had gone to a phone in Tyler, Texas, according to this report, 1.45 p.m., I believe, uh, which is an hour and 15 minutes after Kennedy was shot, and called in to tell the FBI that he uh, wanted to be helpful. He had heard the president was shot, and he, he was aware of a person who could be a possible suspect and wanted to provide some information. Now, of course, I, I assume anyone listening, your eyebrows are going up because how how many Americans felt that they had information on who might have shot the president? I'm sure precious few. And then if you know that Mr. Bush could, had said earlier, well, he couldn't remember where he was when he heard Kennedy was shot, obviously it doesn't jive very well with him claiming to have possible inside knowledge of something. Uh, and then I began looking more closely at the call. I just was wondering why he called, didn't call the FBI in Washington or the FBI in Dallas. He instead called the FBI in Houston. Uh, and he told them that he knew a fellow they ought to look into. And I then began looking, I'm, I'm pretty meticulous about my work. And I, I even began looking into the FBI agent who took the report. And lo and behold, I found evidence that that man and his brother were very close friends of Mr. Bush. Now, nowhere in the report did that appear? And it seems to me that the FBI would require, I would think, that if you were an FBI agent and somebody you knew well called in with a tip, you would have to identify the fact that you knew this person and maybe even shed some light and say, I know I've known this person for 20 years and I consider him to be credible or something. But there was no mention of that, which I also found suspicious uh, and, and highly irregular. And then, um, I began looking at the man he was saying might have been involved in shooting the president of the United States. The next thing I discovered was that that man, instead of the FBI immediately going uh, and bring, taking him into custody or for questioning, uh, he instead was allowed, this, this suspect was allowed to, uh, uh, on his own, you say, recognizance, to drive in and visit a, I believe it was the local Secret Service office in Houston, and we was driven in by another man and to talk to them and get himself cleared. Now, what really interested me there, besides that whole sort of uh, unfolding, was that the man who drove him in and said, oh, yeah, no, he couldn't have done anything because he was making lawn signs for the Harris County Republican Party. Well, who was that man? That was George H.W. Bush's right hand man. Yeah. So the, the whole thing is just bizarre. He's he's calling to to rat out somebody that obviously he had every reason to know, you know, had, had nothing to do with anything. And then, I mean, the whole, the whole thing is just uh, completely shady where I can't remember where I was. I was literally calling in a tip to the FBI saying I might know who, who killed the president. I mean, that seems like something that would be um, pretty, pretty etched in your memory. I mean, people who were just, watering their lawn when they heard Kennedy got killed can remember they were watering their lawn. Uh, the idea that a guy who's calling in tips to the FBI uh, just flat out doesn't know, you know, what he was up to. Um, so, and then you, you also in family of secrets uh, connect 
Poppy Bush to to another major um, major event, major scandal, whatever you want to call it, from that time period, uh, the, the whole Watergate scandal. So, can you sketch out just a little bit of 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 what some of those those connections are there, and kind of how how you ended up with a little bit different view of Watergate than than the the standard mainstream view? Sure. Uh, and, and I want to emphasize, by the way, just uh, to bring some closure to the Kennedy thing, there's much, much more there. You and I are just uh, uh, really kind of scratching the surface. And, uh, you know, we find out that he uh, was meeting with uh, a man who turns out to have been the CIA's chief coup creator, a guy named Alfred Ulmer. That's all in, in the book. Um, and so there's much more there. I mean, sure. we don't have time to go through all of it, but there's a lot there, a lot, a lot, a lot. And now moving to Watergate, I was interested in Watergate. Well, of course, Watergate's interesting. And, and again, uh, my assumption, just as I thought Lee Harvey Oswald had killed Kennedy, as I think most journalists believe, because they don't know that much about this, I had assumed that Richard Nixon was really out of control and doing all these illegal things and that the system for a change worked, that Congress did the right thing, that heroic journalists by the name of Woodward and Bernstein uh, got this story. This is the story that that half a century later, we're still being told these stories. And I hope there's time to talk about how corrupt our media is, because we're still being told these stories. Uh, I and other people who tell the, who are telling the real story are being attacked uh, by people who work for mainstream news organizations where in some cases, even the owners themselves, uh, we can document ties to the intelligence apparatus. So this is happening today. But going back to Watergate, the what interested me so much about Bush was I was already interested in him, of course. I was interested in the fact that uh, Richard Nixon had made him uh, his UN ambassador uh, at the beginning of his term. And I, I didn't understand that. And that seemed so strange to me. This is how I got into Watergate. I thought, well, why is he taking this guy? He had, he had lost for Senate. Uh, he'd run uh, uh, for the House of Representatives and had, he was elected in 66. And then those were two-year terms of re-election 68. And then um, uh, Nixon made him the UN ambassador. So I sort of thought, well, you know, he he doesn't seem to have any more qualifications to be UN ambassador than to be CIA director. So I thought, why are they? Why is that happening? And so I, I tried to figure out what the relationship with Nixon was. And this is where it took me into this fascinating direction, where I learned that the Bush family had ties to Nixon, going way back to the very beginning of Nixon's career. And I found something that I don't think has ever been reported anywhere, which is that Richard Nixon, far from the conventional narrative, was not just sort of chosen by local businessmen in Whittier, California, but that, in fact, very powerful interests on Wall Street had decided to remove a powerful Democratic congressman from California who was causing them no end of grief in his investigations and his seeking uh, post-depression regulation. And they had gone and looked for somebody to run against him, and they had chosen Richard Nixon. And according to my research, it looks like the man who went out there, physically went out there to uh, look for somebody, was Prescott Bush. And we then see, and in, in my book, Family of Secrets, you can actually see a picture of a young uh, Richard Nixon. I think he's vice president, but he's still pretty young, 
uh, and uh, Prescott Bush standing, uh, towering over him, and, and, and Prescott Bush is toying with this younger man, uh, and it looks like Nixon uh, is a little bit embarrassed, but has to do whatever this man wants to do, and I thought that picture really was worth a thousand words. Um, my, my, my estimation is that the Bushes and the people for whom they served as managers really owned Richard Nixon from the beginning. And, and by all the indications of what I can see in reading deep into the, uh, some of notes from Richard Nixon's top advisors and from the, uh, from the lesser known uh, so-called Watergate tapes, Nixon was chafing. He, he didn't trust these people. He thought they were dangerous and he was struggling to get out from under them, particularly once he was president. And I saw these signs of his concern. In fact, um, at one point, uh, some, one of his people asked him, why in the world did you choose Spiro Agnew as your vice president, uh, a man who was, I think, known in at least certain circles as being corrupt. Um, he, was, he lacked charisma. He was really pretty awful in every respect. And he chuckled and he said, assassination insurance. <laughs> now, that could be a joke or that could mean something because, of course, John F. Kennedy um, uh, had a uh, also corrupt and generally unlikable fellow as his vice president. Uh, and uh, the U.S. ended up getting that man. And so I don't think he was joking. Um, people didn't want uh, Spiro Agnew to be president. And in fact, if you go and you study what happened, they got rid of Spiro Agnew before they got rid of, um, of, of, uh, of Nixon. And I think that was very, very significant because if they were going to get rid of Nixon, they wanted their guy to take over. And of course, that was Gerald Ford, who uh, had his own ties to intelligence. So um, this is the kind of backstory we are never treated to by uh, the media, by the textbook companies, um, by academia. You mentioned teaching uh, academia in general. It's very, very hard, particularly if you teach at the most prominent universities. They don't want you talking about this stuff, and you're not going to. So there's almost no discussion of these matters. But in any case, um, I became interested in that. And then I discovered correspondence where, wouldn't you know it, the powers that be, big corporations in America that gave a lot of money to the Republican Party, were lobbying Nixon and others around him to make George H.W. Bush his vice president, a position he was totally unqualified for, didn't bring anything, I don't think, really substantive to the ticket, except that he was from Texas, might have been of some value, but there were other Texans probably could have found. In any case, uh, uh, they were lobbying for him and Nixon didn't do it, but he immediately gave him this consolation prize of UN ambassador. So he serves as UN ambassador. He then begins uh, uh, lobbying and he, he manages to get cabinet rank and he starts visiting Washington all the time and attending uh, cabinet meetings, which is not normal for a U.N. ambassador. So he's already, you know, his goal, clearly, Bobby Bush's goal was to be in uh, in the White House there. And he, there he is. And then he somehow manages to get himself named as the chairman of the Republican Party. And so he's chairman of the Republican Party. And all this stuff starts going down with Watergate. I then find links between George H.W. Bush and for example, a man who was a fellow Skull and Bones person who's inside the White House. And what I discover is that they're all, instead of helping Nixon, they're hurting Nixon. They're giving, advising him to do things that if, if they ever become public would be his ruin. Um, they're writing speeches for him where he's admitting to things that he didn't actually know anything about. That's this other Skull and Bones guy. 
Um, and then I start finding ties between uh, Bush, this other fellow, some of the others, and, and key names that we know from Watergate, such as uh, Alexander Butterfield, the man who reveals the taping system, such as uh, E. Howard Hunt, one of the burglars, uh, such as, I'm now starting to blank out on, uh, uh, a bunch of these other people, the um, uh, John Dean, uh, the one who supposedly flips to the other side and then reveals everything, that they're all tied up with CIA connections. And then I begin to realize and start asking people who know more than I do that the CIA routinely, uh, and I think probably you could argue legitimately, uh, tries to, uh, to uh, insinuate a number of their operatives around the president. Uh, and you could argue that that's for security reasons, because, of course, the president has the nuclear button and can do a lot of damage to the national interest if they go off. And so... Uh, so there he is, and I believe he was assigned, that's my conclusion, that he was assigned to get in the White House, get close to Nixon. And then at some point, Nixon was doing some things, including calling in the CIA director and, and asking him to give him the CIA's most confidential files, including on the Kennedy assassination. And then the CIA director, Richard Helms, refuses, and they start having a fight. There's a shouting match. I think this these are the origins of a decision made to remove Richard Nixon from office, just as they had with John F. Kennedy. But this time, they're, going to, they're not going to do it in a public, violent way. They're going to just set him up. And we see the makings of pre-Watergate attempted scandals for Nixon. And I described those in Family of Secrets. And you see Poppy Bush right there in the milieu. He's ostensibly defending Nixon. But uh, in, in the final uh, analysis. He ends up being one of the ones who tells Nixon, you've got to resign. Uh, and then we see some correspondence where he's actually bragging about the role that he played in pushing Nixon out. And so uh, Nixon, uh, and I go into this, there's, a, uh, I think, a whole chapter just on why the establishment wanted Nixon, wanted Nixon out, just as I have a chapter on why the establishment wanted John F. Kennedy out. This is not strictly a partisan thing. This is a matter of whether the president is controllable by these interests and whether the president is uh, uh, following uh, orders, really, and, and carrying out policy that these very powerful, influential interests would uh, would like to see. Yeah, and just uh, in, in regard to Watergate, Bob Woodward always struck me as a bit of a suspicious figure. I mean, to me, Bernstein seems a little bit less suspicious. But definitely Bob Woodward, uh, I believe, was in um, ONI, the Office of Naval Intelligence, before he became a journalist. And I, I've always, um, ever since I started learning a little bit more about Bob Woodward and his background and his connections, he's always struck me as a likely candidate for one of these kind of um, journalists who's a collaborator with the intelligence apparatus. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Well, I, I spent a fair amount of time looking into Bob, and I was fascinated to see that he got that job at the at the uh, Washington Post and then was tossed the Watergate assignment with almost no journalism experience of any note. He, uh, he had been in uh, naval intelligence, and uh, then um, – and this is documented, although he disputes this, but it is documented that he then – uh, while he was in the Navy, was assigned to work in the Nixon White House, where he worked for Alexander Haig. And again, this is huge, because if you know that, you view him in an entirely different light. 
If you look at uh, any of our country's most storied historians, none of them will ever mention any of this. They just say, Bob Woodward, intrepid reporter, breaks this story. You know, well, no, that's not what happened. And um, so, so he worked in the White House. And then, for some reason, a decision was made to get him into journalism. Um, I think this was all part of the same operation. And uh, he then, um, and by the way, Bob Woodward's background, you know, he went to Yale, you know, same story. Um, and Bob, by the way, was a Republican. I think it's important to note that he was not a Democrat. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, Bob then, uh, is, is given, you know, it, it would seem odd if his first job with no journalism background was at a top level paper like the Washington Post. So he briefly serves on some local paper. I think it was maybe a weekly in Maryland, but just for a little while. And then they move him over to the Post. And um, I noticed that the um, that he when he was hired at the Post, there was an effort to get him hired, and the effort included people over at, in the Pentagon were were saying, "Hey, hire this guy." And they were going to the the family that owned the Post, uh, Catherine Graham's family, which again is another family not properly investigated. All this hagiography, all these movies that come out about what an amazing and uh, uh, dedicated person she was. Well, the the, the um, their whole family, I mean, her father helped fund Zapata offshore. They were just totally wired into the Pentagon and the national security apparatus, just like other wealthy families. And then we see that um, one of the people who uh, it was putting in a good word for Bob is the president of the Washington Post Company, who I discovered had just left. He had just come over from being the uh, Navy secretary. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And it's wow. so powerful when you put it together. And I want to say, by the way, that I've got a little tiff going on Twitter. My personal Twitter uh, is real Russ Baker with uh, a guy from Politico. Now, he says, uh, somebody asked him something. He said, well, I've read Baker's book and he, he makes all these allegations and I don't see that he puts it together. Well, that's just ridiculous. I, I've got almost a solid five stars on Amazon, almost 500 reader reviews for a reason, because I totally do put it all together. And if you, if you read it and you read his statement, you immediately wonder what's wrong with him. And so I look at this guy and he works for Politico. What is Politico? It was founded by Joe Albritton. Guess what? Dot, 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 uh, financial ties back into the intelligence apparatus. So then, of course, after after being a CIA director and, and before that UN ambassador and chairman of the Republican Party in the 70s, then, of course, George H.W. Bush makes a run at the presidency in 80 and, and doesn't get it, but ends up somehow becoming vice president. And and can you just share some of some of the the highlights or lowlights of the kind of uh non-establishment story of some of the things Poppy was involved with or connected with during his time as vice president and then his his one term as president? Oh, my gosh. It's hard to know where to start. I mean, I, I think- Of, of course, every, is- everybody should everybody should go uh, read Family of Secrets and get every last detail. But just uh, what, are, what are some of the things that really kind of uh, uh, stand out to you? Well, the first thing is the, is the degree to which he and Reagan- hated each other. Uh, and then Reagan takes him as, as vice president. It reminds me as a little bit of the, um, of the, um, uh, Eisenhower Nixon. I think there was that feeling Eisenhower <laughs> didn't like Nixon and didn't want him, but was told to take him by the same crowd, Prescott Bush and the like. 
Prescott Bush, by the way, was Ike's main golfing partner and was always sort of pressuring him to do things. And Ike resisted, finally blowing up with his military industrial speech. That was a huge deal, which has never been properly uh, uh, examined as to what that really was about. Why would he do that having been a general and being so close to the military industrial complex? He'd been pressured all those years. And then, of course, uh, Kennedy with Johnson, who loathed each other. Um, and so, uh, again, it's it's an unusual pairing. I think in most cases, they try to take somebody, uh, uh, you know, Clinton with Biden. Well, you know, Biden is a, at least an amiable guy, <laughs> pretty easy to get along with, you know. So I think I think in most cases they try to get somebody that they didn't immensely dislike, uh, but that one struck me, and so uh, so I was interested in not only did Reagan take Poppy Bush as his vice president, Poppy Bush who uh, 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 accused him of voodoo economics, um, a lot of animosity, and then but but the, the the campaign manager of the losing guy, Poppy Bush becomes the campaign manager for Reagan, James Baker. And that's very interesting. And then he goes on to hold tremendous power. I think what they did was they figured out how to game Reagan. Reagan was funded by, um, there's a concept, the uh, uh, Yankees and the Cowboys, the uh, two different factions of the Republican Party. The, the Yankees are this East, East Coast dominated financial establishment and the, and the Cowboys were these sort of Texan wildcatters California, big real estate, um, car dealers, and what have you. And that group, the, the Cowboys, were really the ones behind Reagan. And I think the establishment needed to sort of subdue him. And the way to do that was to, to persuade him somehow to take Poppy Bush. I don't know what they did. They may well have had something on Reagan that he was embarrassed about. But he agreed to take Poppy Bush, and he agreed to take James Baker and let him run the campaign. And so they win. And um, within um, uh, within literally uh, weeks of, of and, and by the way, Poppy Bush wanted to be president. Um, he wanted to be president, vice president, all the way back in 1968. Now we're in 1980, so that's a long time later. Um, and and actually, he had wanted to run for president in 1976 and had instead accepted the CIA position. Um, so here he is, wanting to be president, wanting to be president, wanting to be president. And now this guy Ronald Reagan comes in and is, is he's just going to be vice president, which is an ignominious uh, position. And um, he's now got to wait another eight years. And so, uh, and Ronald Reagan, by the way, tremendously charismatic, likable fellow. Um, uh, and then Poppy Bush with, with, with a personality that really was not the sort that would win elections was going to have to get uh, elected on his own after waiting eight years. Uh, very tough. And so, um, uh, so Reagan's president, and just literally within weeks, he's shot. And if he dies, and he, he apparently was in very bad shape, if he dies, uh, of course, just with John F., as with John F. Kennedy and Johnson, the vice president, that's W. Bush, becomes president. And when you consider uh, Nixon's joke about assassination insurance, you don't take that lightly. So you become much more interested when you learn that this man who shot Ronald Reagan, John Hinckley, uh, came from... Um, uh, from um, Midland, Texas, that's the same town where uh, Poppy Bush lived and raised his family and started in the oil business. And then you discover that the Hinckleys and the Bushes knew each other well, that the Hinckleys were financial supporters of the Bushes. I found that they actually even shared an attorney in common. Uh, and I've been out there to Midland. It's a small place and everybody knows each other. So I said, well, 
what are the odds here? Just as you know, what are the odds that uh, uh, that 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 Bush, who couldn't remember where he was uh, when Kennedy was shot, would also be the same person who would call the FBI with a tip on that? Uh, would also, by some evidence, be in intelligence work at the time. Now, what's the odds that the man who whose bullet would have put Poppy Bush into the presidency would be a man who personally knew him and knew the families knew each other. And that just struck me. And it was so weird. I have to confess, I did not even put it into family of secrets. Uh, but I did finally write an article about it when Hinckley was being released from prison, which he has been. Uh, and I ran it on our news website, who, what, why.org. You can go there and type in Hinckley. It's H I N C K L E Y. Um, and read read about that, but yeah, I don't. I, we don't have time to go into all the detail. But basically, uh, there was all this backstory, and in fact, even weirder that the Hinckleys and the Bushes knew each other was the fact that uh, the night uh, after Reagan was shot, or the next night, I can't remember. Um, uh, John Hinckley's brother and um, and George H. W. Bush's son were to have dinner together. Right. Yeah, and that was uh, Neil Bush, I think. Right. Right, right. And and I then found that the Hinckley family's oil company was um, had suddenly been put under investigation by the Reagan-Bush administration and faced a, I believe it was a million-dollar fine uh, if, uh, uh, if they were found to, to have been some wrongdoing. And as, I, as far as I could tell, after the shooting, all of that vanished and the pressure eased up on the Hinckley family. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. Uh, I'm very careful. You sound like a very careful man. I don't intend to ever go one step further than I can in speculating, but I think a reasonably sentient person listening to this can kind of put some pieces together and figure out if you, if somebody was engineering something, how they might do it. And uh, I also want to say that, um, that it, it, you know, some people, and particularly these sort of conventional media types, and that usually equates with conventional thinking, would say, well, that's ridiculous because if if and, and I'm not saying I'm I'm not explicitly stating that I know anything here, but if somebody and I'm not saying who it would have been, but if somebody who wanted to see Poppy Bush become president wanted to arrange this, you'd say, well, why would you use somebody from a family that somebody could prove knew the Bushes? That would be the last person you would use, and you could say that's true. But there's another uh, principle here which I kind of learned as I began studying intelligence work, and that's where instead of using uh, if, if, in other words, if, if somebody, uh, wants to, would ever suspect somebody of having, uh, benefited from some heinous act, instead of, um, just, uh, using somebody who's not connected to them, you would do the opposite and you would actually almost place them in such obvious, uh, proximity to the thing that people would then say, well, he can't have been involved because, if he was involved, he wouldn't be in proximity with it, if you follow me. Right. And so this is, I don't know what this is called. I'd love it if anybody listening to this wants to contact me, if they know what this term is, this term of art. I'm sure this is a concept, just as I found when I studied Bush. Uh, we didn't talk about it, but there was a um, there was an FBI memo about a briefing on the Kennedy assassination with Mr. George Bush of the CIA uh, as that was all investigated, the CIA eventually put forth the name, claiming there was another guy with that name. It turned in that it turned out that that man had been brought into the CIA shortly before Kennedy was shot, uh, was recruited, uh, 
and and put in at a very low level and only stayed basically just long enough to cover that period and then left the agency. And then, uh, you know, decades later, they come forward and say, oh, that's that other guy. So I think we're looking at some very fascinating and quite sophisticated and clever um, intelligence cover phenomenon that, in fact, disarms uh, ordinary inquiry uh, because it all seems too fantastic. Uh, and then we just sort of drop drop it and, and, and don't pursue. All right. So un- unfortunately, um, there's there's so much more that we could get into. But uh, again, I'll urge everyone to go read Family of Secrets to get all kinds of stuff besides what we've mentioned here today, uh, including, you know, some things about Poppy Bush's relation to the whole Iran-Contra thing and and um, some of the, the motivations behind the first Gulf War and obviously also – um, lots of stuff regarding his son, George W. Bush, who also became president. But I just wanted to kind of give you a chance, zooming out here, like, what do you think it says, first off, that the real story of this family is this way, and second off, that most of the the media establishment in this country is is not at all interested and, and is either willingly or unwillingly, as the case may be, kind of aiding and abetting the, the truth from being known about this family, but also many other uh, other families and individuals who are these sorts of characters. Like, what, what does it say about our, our system? Well, I mean, there are some people who believe that the death of John F. Kennedy was actually the death of democracy in this country. Uh, whether you agree with that or not, certainly – Big money has more power now than ever. Um, and, um, uh, you know, the the Supreme Court decision uh, basically saying that corporations are people and have special rights. I mean, things have just gotten worse and worse. The, the Koch brothers and all these other entities and apparatuses have been unleashed. Um, and And I think presidents have proven themselves to be far more impotent. I mean, you don't see a Kennedy doing the kinds of bold things that he did, or uh, Franklin Roosevelt, you don't see that anymore. And this is why we have to get excited about, you know, we like the first lady. I mean, that's how pathetic things have become. Um, you know, and if you look at the presidents, I mean, Obama, uh, I don't know how well known this is. Uh, New York Times did a small, uh, once did an article on this. Obama worked right out of college for a CIA um, uh, connected research company. And uh, Bill Clinton got special permission to travel to the Soviet Union, uh, really at the height of the Cold War. Um, I'm not saying that these people are totally compromised, but I think there's an effort to uh, get your your hooks into them. I think the fact that Bobby Bush's funeral featured a eulogy by the former editor of Newsweek, which should be agnostic and and, and hard-hitting, who left Newsweek and went on to write a really uh, a disgraceful hagiography of George H.W. Bush that looks into none of these things. Uh, this man never contacted me, never showed any interest in all this back history. He was the editor of Newsweek. He was an Ivy League guy. Uh, Newsweek, if you go all the way back, you find out it was, it was owned by the Washington Post Company. And Newsweek was a major um, uh, 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 home for CIA cover people. Uh, and so was Time Magazine, by the way. And, uh, and so was U.S. News and World Report. In fact, um, Carl Bernstein, very interestingly, after he stopped working with Bob Woodward, he went to Rolling Stone. Uh, uh, he did a piece for them where he described the extent of infiltration of the media by intelligence. It was 
was a major article and a big shock at the time. Most people don't remember it. It's not talked about anymore. But he basically said that the media had been heavily, heavily saturated with, with intelligence assets. I think that's probably true today. It's the only way to me that you can explain this Politico guy and this uh, Newsweek guy and many of these others who go out there. Uh, there was somebody who went on Rachel Maddow recently, and she said, there's nothing to any of this uh, Kennedy stuff, is there? And he said, uh, oh, no, nothing there. Now, so there's a kind of a what what uh, a Goebbels the the master propagandist called the 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 the, the huge you know the big lie, uh, and there's kind of a big lies here, and they, they they obstruct our ability to see how things actually work. And of course, when you can't see how things actually work, you're sort of you're powerless because you're living in a fantasy. And you mentioned you started by mentioning uh, the usual suspects. I'll end by mentioning another one, which is the Truman Show, another movie, uh, which is. Uh, uh, which is a you know a parable about a fellow who discovers that his whole life is uh, is, is is fake and that, that 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 he's part of this big show and everybody around him are actors and of course it's not really like that but to some extent it is because all we know is what we're told all we know is what we get from our media and even those media we love the so-called um, um, you know, the, 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 the New Yorkers and the Atlantics and so on, which do very, very good work, will never touch any of what we're talking about on this program. They will never touch this. And therefore, even though I've worked for some of these places and I admire them and I like the people, they understand that success in this country requires that you shut your eyes and you shut your mouth and you shut your ears and you do the best you can within what is acceptable, and you don't take any risks beyond that. And, of course, until we really tackle that and enough of us begin to care, we're never really going to be able to take the lid off of all of this, get out of that fishbowl, and uh, start directing our destiny. Well, Russ, it's been a a great conversation. And as we close out, I just want to give you a a minute to just uh, talk a little bit about what you're involved with now, who, what, why, uh, your current book project, and and that sort of thing. Sure. Well, I've been working for some years on a book about the John F. Kennedy assassination. There are so many books out there. And just as when I started with the Bushes, uh, people said, well, why are you doing this? We already know everything about them. There are already a bunch of books. Uh, I thought with the Kennedy thing, despite the fact there are probably, I don't know, maybe a thousand books, that nobody, to my satisfaction, ever put it together uh, in in a comprehensive way so that you can really feel that the person doesn't have their thumb on the scale, that they're not trying to uh, advance some agenda, but that they're really, it's a result of a serious, open-minded investigation. So that's a book I've been working on for a very long time. I hope it'll be finished in the next couple of years or so. Um, and uh, I, I founded some some years back. I founded a nonprofit news organization called Who What Why. The website is whowhatwhy.org. The idea was to create a news organization that could tell the truth. And because I saw all of these problems with these conventional brands, I said, let's make it a nonprofit. Let's not allow any owners or investors, stockholders, uh, advertisers have any kind of say. And let's build it from with public support. So all of our funding, which is not great, but all of our funding, uh, what it is, uh, comes from members of the public, people who are like folks who are listening to this podcast. And, you know, we struggle to fund ourselves uh, to pay the writers and the editors and so on. We, we also have an interesting structure where we've got a fair number of uh, pro bono people, uh, people with high levels of skills in 
auxiliary areas who come in and help out without asking for a paycheck. So it's an interesting model. We cover uh, current events in unusual and fresh ways. And we also continue reporting on historical things like the types of things we talked about on this program, because we think it's so important. We think the media in general does a terrible job of providing historical context or multi-year examinations of rolling events. So that's who, what, why. Um, and those are my uh, main activities. I, uh, I also uh, enjoy a little bit of humor and edge in my personal Twitter feed, which is real, R-E-A-L, Russ Baker. There's a Facebooks for, uh, for who, what, why, a Facebook for uh, uh, me personally, uh, and various websites for the book Family of Secrets. Family of Secrets is out as a, a hardcover, paperback, audio uh, book, ebook. Uh, you can find it through all the usual sources. And uh, that's, that's it. All right. Well, thanks again for talking to me today. It's been a really great conversation. Thank you very much. To the tables down at Maurice, to the place where Louis dwells, to the dear old temple bar we love so well. Sing the within pools assembled with their glasses raised on high, and the magic of their singing casts its spell. Yes, the magic of their singing, of the songs we love so well, shall I wasting and mourning and the rest. We will serenade our Louis while life and voice shall last. Then we'll pass and be forgotten with the rest. We are poor little lambs who have lost our way. Bah, bah, bah. <laughs> we are little black sheep who have gone astray. Bah, bah, bah. Gentlemen, songsters off the spring. Damned from here to eternity. God, have mercy on such as we. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it and found value in it. And I'd like to give a special thanks to the following awesome individuals for helping me to keep doing what I'm doing. For signing up to support the show via Patreon, I'd like to thank Matthew. Thanks very much for stepping up to support the show. If you like the show, please go to the website, DangerousHistoryPodcast.com, to find the show notes, including Amazon links for this and all other regular DHP episodes. You can also like and follow the show on Facebook and also follow the show on Twitter. And if you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or however else you prefer to get your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me out to keep this thing going and growing and constantly improving, such as simply spreading the word to other people you think might like the show and leaving ratings and reviews in places like iTunes. You can also help the show financially. Go to profcj.org slash donate 
And you'll find a bunch of different ways to do this, including a link to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash profcj. And for a pledge of just $5 per month, you'll have access to special bonus episodes available nowhere else, early access to ad-free versions of all regular upcoming DHP episodes, and access to what I call vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. You'll also be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. Also on the donate page, you will find links to do one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, as well as donations via Bitcoin. Another great way you can help out the show is to do your Amazon shopping through any of the Amazon affiliate links and do your A-book shopping from any of my A-books affiliate links found anywhere on my website. I post Amazon affiliate links of items related to each episode in that episode's show notes. I also have generic Amazon and A-books affiliate links in the sidebar of the website. And if you go through any of those links to those sites and buy anything, even if it's not an item I specifically link to, I will get a small commission, and that helps me keep the show going. Also want to mention a continuing work in progress is my dangerous Amazon bibliography. If you go to profcj.org slash Amazon, that's profcj.org slash Amazon. There's also a link to it on the little post-it note on my website. And there you'll find a whole ton of Amazon links to books and movies organized by rough subject matter. And those are all things that have been a very big influence on me and on this show. You know, not all of them are books I've cited as of yet somewhere on the show, but they're all books that have informed my thinking, many of which I have cited from and many of which I will cite from in the future to some degree or another. And of course, those being Amazon affiliate links, if you buy anything from any of those links, even if it's not the item itself that was linked to, but you click through to Amazon from one of those links, then buy something else, I will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. And this will help keep the Dangerous History podcast rolling as well. Also, if you need some stock audiovisual materials, such as stock video to use in a film you're making or music to put in a podcast, that sort of thing, check out Pond5.com. They have a great collection of high-quality, royalty-free material available for purchase. And please go there through my affiliate link if you'd like to help out this show. I've used a lot of music from Pond5 in my podcast episodes, including, by the way, all the great music in my Not-So-Civil War series that I'm always getting compliments and questions on. So if you go through the Pond5 affiliate link, if you purchase anything, I will get a commission from anything you buy at no additional cost to you, as with the Amazon links as well. And of course, be sure to patronize any other companies whose ads you may have heard on this episode, if you're at all interested in the products that they offer. That's another way you can help out this show. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. <laughs>